0: for me it's always been about the chefs it's another reason i opened a school and i'm doing everything possible and and a lot of people in my circle doing everything possible to make sure that chefs you know really see themselves as as responsible for delivering not just taste but health Mm -hmm. and i think you know chefs because chefs can be drug dealers but you know some of the food they're putting out there is worse than than drugs or they can be healers
1: that's matthew Kenny, and this is the rich roll podcast Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, what do you guys know what's going on? What is happening? It's Rich Roll here. I am your host. Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, the show where each week I sit down with a thought leader, paradigm-breaking minds and personalities across all categories of health, wellness, diet, nutrition, fitness, entrepreneurship, creativity, spirituality, meditation, mindfulness. You get the picture. And I do this with one goal in mind, to help all of us unlock and unleash our best Most authentic self. So, sorry, I got a little bit of a sniffle here. (laughs) I appreciate everybody tuning in today. If you're new, thank you so much for taking a flyer on the show. If you've been with me for a while, thank you so much for uh, sharing the show with with, uh, your friends and your family and your coworkers. And I greatly appreciate everybody who has made a habit of using the Amazon banner ad at richworld.com for all your Amazon purchases. Or you can just go to richworld.com forward slash Amazon. It'll take care of you that way. Basically, the idea is uh, you're probably going to buy something on Amazon anyway. If you click through this banner, it doesn't cost you a cent extra, but Amazon kicks us some loose commission change, and that really helps us out a lot and keeps the bandwidth flowing. Uh, I just got back from New York City late last night. As you could tell from my sniffle, I'm not 100% today. I'm a little bit fatigued. I didn't get in until, uh, God, well, New York time, it was like 3 a.m., but had an incredible five days there, unbelievably productive. I gave two uh, talks. I did a panel at NYU, which was amazing. Uh, and then I gave a sort of keynote presentation at Deloitte at 30 Rock in Manhattan, which was really fun and super amazing. I did three podcast interviews, I did a ton of meetings. And I just get so energized from New York City. It's just go, go, go. I go from one thing to the next. uh, And I sort of, um, people say, doesn't that drain you? Don't you feel exhausted? But I actually get energy from it. But perhaps maybe I overdid it a little bit because uh, I do feel a little bit of uh, a cold coming on, which is not great. In any event, uh, I am at the same time spiritually and emotionally and mentally rejuvenated and glad to be back uh, with you guys today with another amazing guest. I got Matthew Kenny on the show. He is a celebrity chef, a restaurateur, an author, a public speaker, an entrepreneur, uh, and a guy who basically specializes in everything plant based cuisine. Uh, I got a few more things I want to say about Matthew in a second, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology I've been rocking Ons high performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team, from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, so who is this Matthew Kenny guy? Well, he is a bright, shining star in this growing, exploding world of plant based cuisine. He's a raw vegan himself, he is the author of 12 cookbooks, if you can believe that. He's the founder of Matthew Kenny Cuisine, which is a lifestyle company, as well as Matthew Kenny Culinary Academy, which offers raw food education both in person and online uh, at their centers in Venice, Belfast, Maine, Miami, and Thailand. Matthew is the guy behind heaps of restaurants you might know or have known, including. Pure Food and Wine in New York City, which was one of my favorite restaurants. It's now closed. Uh, Plant Food and Wine in Venice, and also the newest one, which just opened in Miami. We talk about that today on the podcast. Another new restaurant he recently opened in New York City's East Village called Double O and Company, which is a plant-based pizzeria. It's phenomenal. At the time we taped this conversation, Double O had not quite yet opened, but I went there with John Joseph about a month ago. It was absolutely insane. Uh, Matthew is also in the process of opening Plant Cafe in Bahrain in the fall. And the guy's got new places seemingly rolling out like all the time. Uh, He's an interesting guy who has created something really unique and I think extraordinary in this healthy vegan movement. And this conversation took place in the wine tasting room on the back patio of Plant Food and Wine in Venice. Uh, It's a great talk. We talk about everything from the misconceptions and the benefits of a raw food lifestyle and Matthew's personal raw food journey, what it's like to work in and run a Michelin star kitchen, the challenge of preparing raw cuisine for modern clientele, uh, the emergence of raw and vegan restaurants around the world, the practicality of eating raw, but really this conversation is about crafting the future of food so enough from me let's talk to
0: Matthew
1: thanks for doing this Matt. my pleasure I appreciate it uh it was good to see you in Miami I guess that was a month ago six weeks ago or something like that feels like a couple years but yeah, it's just, know, a, right. just around the corner yeah 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 so just to set the stage for the listeners um, we're sitting
0: in is this the wine cellar the wine room wine tasting room yeah we call it the wine room we do private dinners out here but we also store mm-hmm. happen to store all our wine out here as well because it stays cool right yeah it's nice and cool in here and we're in the, the back patio garden
1: of plant food and wine which is your beautiful restaurant here in Venice So thanks for hosting me man pleasure. It's a great setting to have this conversation that I've been wanting to have with you for a long time Pretty chilled out back here on a Monday. It's nice. Yeah, it's cool. So, uh, so many things I want to talk to you about so many points of intersection that we can Explore, but why don't we just kind of kick it off with the basics, right? So you're this, uh, you're this entrepreneur You're this plant-based raw chef So before we get into any of the details in your background Why don't we just qualify what raw is like if somebody's listening to this and they don't even they kind of know what that is but they're not quite sure what we're talking
0: about at least we can like kind of define that sure well when i first got into it there there was a lot of uh attention paid to cooking temperature 108 degrees or 115 or 118 whatever the particular person deciding um where these enzymes would become destroyed you know which number they used but it's really about, for me today, it's not about a temperature, it's about minimally processed food, food in its most natural state, so we use various forms of heat, and we're, we're not entirely raw as a company either, it's just that raw food defines a lot of the work we do, so it's really it's really just about not, you know, if you think about 110 degrees, it's not much warmer than body temperature, so... Mm-hmm. Really just minimally processed minimal heat to and,
1: and what is the idea behind raw? Like the idea of not applying heat to food uh, is a way of preserving the nutrients like sort of quality of the food or, or what is it specifically?
0: Well preserving the nutrients and enzymes, but if you think about it when you're cooking at low temperatures, you're also preserving all the natural you know, the natural moisture and the you know, pretty you can cook out <laughs> Actually, you know, people think cooking adds flavor, but if you cook something long enough, you're removing the flavor. Think about boiling a a head of broccoli for a few minutes. Um, So it's really... So it tastes like nothing. So to me, it also preserves taste. It preserves color. preserves nutrients. It's, you know, it's a much cleaner product. And for me, once I started to eat this way, as a chef, I lost track of the the reason I was introduced to it in the first place, which was for more scientific health reasons and realize that this is a better way of eating it's the texture's better the color's better it's just a lot more a lot more mm-hmm. interesting and complex
1: i would imagine as a chef too it presents its own as somebody who's classically trained and we're going to get into that it presents its own unique set of kind of challenges and uh and uh how do i want to say it um i'm at a loss for words but but it's different than normal cooking in the sense that it, it provides you an opportunity to do things uniquely and, and differently that other
0: people aren't doing, I suppose. Initial, so is that it, accurate? Or? Yeah, initially it was very hard. I tried to apply the, the techniques that I learned from my classical training. And aside from knife skills and, and certain standards that are used for uh, you know proper cooking and proper food handling, I had to start over. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, a whole unique set of skills, a unique set of tools, and a unique set of ideas. Really, the unlearning what you had learned, in a way, um, in a
1: way, it was like learning a new craft. Right. Well, let's go back to let's go back to the the beginning, <laughs> right? Like you grew up in Maine, uh, hunting and fishing, like kids do there. I mean, set the stage a little bit.
0: Grew up in Maine. Uh, loved the outdoors. Um, my dad had grown up on a farm, so we we would partake in all the seasonal things. We had our own honeybees and tapped trees for maple syrup, went fiddleheading and foraging. Um what's fiddleheading? Uh harvesting the fiddleheads, the the wild the edible ferns that grow in the oh, spring wow. in Maine. Uh-huh. Um, always had a garden and, you know, fished and yeah, I was good at hunting. I, I loved it. I, but I I also loved animals and um by the time I was twenty I guess I had just started to not feel you know, like I wanted to hunt anymore. I hadn't made that complete connection that I would make later, but, uh, that was the first thing I let go of. And, um, and also by then I had become very into, uh, health and, and fitness and various forms of exercise and sports and had started eating a very, what I considered a very clean diet at that time, not vegetarian, but, but not a lot of red meat and, and relatively clean and, and almost really plain food, like a, Twenty-year-old college kid doesn't make anything too uh, too exciting. So right. my food was super bland, things that nobody else would would want to eat. Right, brown mm-hmm. rice and so forth. Um, when I moved to New York City, planning to go to law school after college, I discovered the the New York City restaurant scene, and that was just um, it caught my attention like nothing else ever had. I, I was just fascinated by. Wow what brought you to new york in the first place uh well my best one of my best friends in college was from new york city and he used to take me there on uh, holiday breaks so i'd spend a week down in new york at christmas break or spring break and i couldn't get enough that it It was such a contrast to the town of 1500 that i grew up in Uh uh-huh and you Um, went to
1: college in maine too right i did
0: yeah Mm -hmm. what did your what, what did your folks do um my they they at now they have real estate my dad started a construction business and developed some waterfront property and then he put up uh, apartment buildings and um and so he was an entrepreneur as well
1: right 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 all right so you land in new york city when when is this like mid 1980s late 1980s
0: i moved to new york um well i took a 6 month hiatus in hawaii did some hiking trying to to figure out what i wanted to do uh-huh. and it kept <laughs> kept going back to new york so yeah i was in new york i think in delaying the law school experience yeah 89 i guess january 89 i Ah. I moved to new york that's when i moved to new york oh wow yeah Yeah, it was freezing and i was just coming off six months of Kauai, so it wasn't wasn't easy Mm -hmm. harsh reality
1: Mm -hmm. and did you have a job there or you were just going to go and plant a flag and see what was what
0: i got um my girlfriend and i rented an apartment and um we had enough money for a couple of days and i walked next door to uh Christie's East, which was an annex of Christie's the auction house, it was mm-hmm. a, next door to the apartment I rented and they sent me over to Park Avenue and I got a job there. That was my first job in New oh, York. Wow. Just hit the street. Just like that? Yeah, I just I just hit the street. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. And so and, and and so in the art world basically.
0: Yeah, which I I did for a few months and they offered me a, actually not quite a year, but they offered me a permanent job in one of the departments and these are jobs that people from really, um, you know, high-end education backgrounds, aspire to these jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, it's very competitive. You need a connection to get in, and here I was with this potential job at Christie's, and I, I was uh, asked in my interview. Um, what, what I wanted, what my goals were, and I said I want to open a restaurant because by then I had just been dining out a little bit with whenever uh-huh. somebody would invite me out, and I just I couldn't get that out of my head. So. so that that
1: that that seed was planted, but it wasn't planted before going to New York and kind of like your eyes
0: opening up to this amazing culinary scene that was going on there. Not really, no. I I just happened to see what was what was going on with food, but it was more than that. It was seeing there was one particular restaurant where the owner was. Um, it was sitting at the bar I saw him keep di- dialing the mute playing the music a little bit the, the lighting was perfect the food was great he was sipping a glass of wine and I just thought you know that's that job has all the creative elements that you could hope for mm-hmm. um, re- do you remember what restaurant that was yeah it's still there it's called Elio's on the Upper East Side uh-huh. um, I've been there now a couple hundred times but um, yeah it just happened to be one of my first experiences and it's probably one of the most successful restaurants in the city right long running
1: and how do you do that as like a starving young person in New York with you know not much money? Sort of tapping into the, you know, the restaurant scene.
0: How do you go out? Or how well, do you yeah,
1: like how do you do that on a budget when you're like a young
0: person on a budget? Well, my uh, my girlfriend who became my fiance, um, her father would invite us out, or my friend mm-hmm. would invite us out, and we you know we had our jobs, and we whatever we did make, we'd spend on restaurants, right? Um, and it stayed that way for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so where do you go where where does the idea of going to culinary school start to creep in? So I was uh I was walking uh, on my lunch break at Christie's the auction house every day I'd, I'd go for a walk during break and um cuz I still you know wanted to be outside and there was one restaurant a block from Christie's that I could see it coming together it was under construction and the menu was exactly the kind of food that I like it was sicilian inspired um really beautiful design I didn't know anything about restaurants or architects or but but I kept looking in and one day um, around the time I had this interview at Christie's for a permanent job the general manager of this about to open restaurant saw me out there and he said like I've seen you here a few times what do, you, do you want a job? Uh-huh. Just basically offered me a job and I took it gave my notice and and I went to this restaurant and started working in the dining room um, a couple weeks later and it turned out that the architect was one of the most well-known restaurant designers in the city at that time and this chef was this hot chef from lippery off the coast of sicily and it ended up you know all the food critics and all the people mattered in the food world ended up coming into this place and i was there for that so oh, i learned that, you know, it was a very well i also only lasted two weeks in the dining room the chef asked me why after college i was working in a restaurant he said that was a stupid decision i should never be in the restaurant business uh-huh. here he was in the restaurant <laughs> business. <laughs> And he said, well, if you really want to do this, you need to learn about the food. So he brought me into the kitchen, and I started cooking. Um, they just threw me on the line, basically. Hmm. Um, and then one of the, the, the only um, American in the kitchen, they were all Italian, and this American was the pastry chef, and she told me that I needed, if I was serious about this, I needed some classical training. So I went to the French Culinary Institute at hmm. the same time I was working.
1: Interesting. It's almost like this bizarre faded thing, right? Like the stars aligned. You just happened to be, you were, you were like, there was this gravitational pull to this restaurant that you didn't know at that time had a certain center of gravity that would then, you know, kind of launch you into this career path. It's really interesting. It's, it's almost like a, you know, it's a New York story. You show up in New York, not sure what you want to do and, and, you know, find this dream and pursue it. Uh, It's very cool.
0: Yeah, the whole my whole career's been like that. A <laughs> yeah. whole series of weirdness.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, so so I'm gathering like well, it, it's amazing because sitting here now with you and kind of looking across the garden and 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 what you've built here with the culinary school upstairs and and understanding a little bit about, you know, the expanse of the Matthew Kenny cuisine mini empire that you've been building and all the restaurants that you've been involved with, um I would presume or one would presume that you're a person who is very goal oriented and and very methodical in your in your sort of approach towards being an entrepreneur or, or building a business but i also get this you also seem to be someone who's kind of feeling your way through it
0: yeah i i mean i i i'm a yogi and and mm-hmm. take everything you know that way um but yeah it's a, it's a balance i mean you have to remain open to whatever's going to appear. I mean, some incredible things just mm-hmm. appear. You can't plan for that. right? Um, but we do set goals. I don't set five year or 10. Year. Well, I have a big, you know, broad, long-term goals, but most of my goals are shorter term, you know, three months, six months a right. year. Right. Do you actually sit down and write that out and map it out? I do. We had our, our leadership team meeting last week. I have a team of nine people that are my core team and, um, and, you know not only map out what our goals are for the next few months we also map out our our bigger much more bold um targets that you know that are kind of our wish list and then i and i set goals for every single person on the team as well right
1: all right so so back in the the your first kitchen experience working with this chef i mean is that you know you know what is it like to work in the kitchen with a sort of revered chef in new york city because my impression of that is informed entirely by you know reality television shows and you know what i see in the movies is it is it is that what it's like or you know what is what is that experience all about
0: this kitchen in particular um it was interesting they um you know his food was incredible but it wasn't f- it wasn't fancy. Like what I was working in French, in the French restaurants, there were some really just talented Italian cooks, um, putting out, you know, really pretty straightforward Sicilian cuisine. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was, you know, it wasn't fancy. I mean, the kitchen, the hood wasn't working half the time I was there. So it was a hundred degrees. Um, it's intense. You're feeding, you know, 120, 130 people, just three cooks on the line. So it's hot. It's intense. The chef's yelling in Italian, throwing things back at you if they're not, if they don't look right, it's, it's intense. You get burns on your arms, you get a couple cuts, people are yelling at you and it's hot. And, uh, that's part of what I loved about it. Right. You loved it. (laughs) So you're going to school at the same
1: time that you're working, uh, in this kitchen. Um, and, and, and I take it that the idea was always that you wanted to have your own restaurant. Like you, one of the things you just mentioned a moment ago was your, your attention to kind of design, right? Like you were able to notice the architecture of this restaurant. And I feel like you have like a, an affection and an appreciation for that aspect of this business that you're in. It
0: is the design. My first, um, sort of the first time my radar turned toward restaurants, it wasn't because I wanted to be a chef. It was because I, I really respected the whole package like the space where you could bring it all together, and- the mm. food and the wine and the ambiance and the, the hiring the right staff. Um, then it becomes like a musical performance, mm-hmm. um, a good one or a bad one, depending on how you execute. So, yeah, the design is, is really important right. to me. And how long
1: is the Culinary Institute experience? How long does that go on for?
0: The one I did in New York was uh, six months. It was full-time, Monday through Friday. Um, the Some of the longer ones will go a year or two years, but this was more it's one of the most respected, uh, culinary programs. It was called the French culinary Institute at the time. And, um, some other well-known chefs had gone there. They'd only been open six years when I went and, but it was six months, Monday through Friday. Um, you know, seven or eight hours a day. Mm-hmm.
1: And when you finish there, do you get a job at a different restaurant or what happens next?
0: Well, they encourage you to get a job at a New York times starred restaurant. So I, uh, after about a year, the chef at the Italian restaurant actually told me I should go and work somewhere more professional, more upscale. Um, his restaurant was a one-star New York Times restaurant. So I went to a three-star French restaurant called La Caravelle, one of the most well-known classic French restaurants in New mm-hmm. York. So I went there shortly after graduating from school.
1: Mm-hmm. So all of this is very, you know, the, this, we're not even anywhere close to, you know, plant-based raw cuisine at this point. It's all about traditional fare. Like kind, very gourmet, traditional cooking approaches.
0: Well, the, at least the Sicilian cuisine was based on olive oil, and there was a lot of citrus and a lot of fresh seasonal vegetables. When you get into the—I mean, of course, now French, a lot of modern French restaurants are doing brilliant, clean food. But it, in the late 80s in New York, gourmet French was escargot, tons of butter, mm-hmm. wine reduction, and cream, and, and just and not a whole lot of fresh food, really. I mm-hmm. mean, it was— you know, it was. Um, I didn't care for the, the cuisine at all. Right. Actually. What were
1: the big? I'm trying to think. What were the big restaurants at the time? Like Le Bernardin. It
0: was Lutès, uh, La Caravelle, Le Cirque. Le, Le Cirque, which is still there. Le Bernardin was there then. I don't know. Maybe it was it open. Was. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, and yeah, La Caravelle was one of one of them. One of the oldest ones, actually. Right and uh
1: and, and so then what happens like so are, i'm trying to get a get a glimpse of like kind of where you were at career-wise and mentally like on the precipice of you having this kind of raw discovery
0: well i went to culinary school planning to open my own restaurant and i i had started writing menus this before i even got out of school you know mm-hmm. for kind of what what i would do in my own restaurant but of course they encourage you to work in other people's kitchens for 10 years or 12 years mm-hmm um, before you even think about doing your own. So I'd only been out of school about a, maybe, maybe a year. And I got a phone call from the manager who hired me outside the Italian restaurant one day. He left that place to open, to, to go to, uh, another, there was another Italian restaurant around the corner, a very flashy place. It had, uh, originally been built by Dino de Laurentiis and it was owned by a Brazilian entrepreneur. And, um, I only knew it from walking by, looking in, thinking how fashionable it looked. It was hard to even imagine going in when I was first moved to New York. And I got a call from the manager who hired me on the street uh, a year earlier or so. And he said, they brought me over to this place because it's starting to fail and they want to turn it around. And I told him I would only do it if I could hire a new chef. Mm -hmm. So he said, I want to offer you the job. And... I talked to Gennaro, the Italian chef who had become a mentor, and he said, no way, you're not ready, that's crazy. Uh-huh. I talked to my chef at the French restaurant. Everybody told me I was too too young, I'd never been a manager, I didn't even know how to order food. Mm-hmm. But I took the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so that was my first executive chef job. I'd that must have been slightly terrifying. I was so... Um, naive that I I did <laughs>
1: like what you don't know you you can't be scared of right
0: I wasn't f- afraid at all uh-huh. I mean you know looking back it was insane I didn't know how to order food I didn't know how to make a schedule nothing uh huh um, but you made it work though yeah walked into the kitchen I pretty much had to throw everything away because they were pre-plating dishes for like two days in a, I mean it was terrible they weren't making stocks and I I really had to clean house I I was very yeah. I don't know why. I was just extremely focused on making this kitchen professional. And I, I was fresh from learning all this professional sort of mm-hmm. attitude. So, And I knew I wanted to go back to the cleaner Sicilian-inspired food, so I, um, I brought in a little bit of Mediterranean influence. Um, and I yeah, developed my own style. Within a few months, I had um, uh, somehow, somebody told Gail Green, the New York, Times, New York Magazine food critic, that I was doing some interesting work, and she came in and gave us this huge, um, incredible review, and my oh, wow. career started, this was just within a few months. Uh-huh. So. How old were you at that time? Um, 91, uh,
1: 25, 26. Wow, that's really young, yeah. yeah. So is it, I just saw that movie, not that long ago, I saw that movie Burnt. Uh, <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it <laughs> have yet. Have you seen it? Well, it's similar to a lot of other movies where you that are about chefs in high-end kitchens where it's this 24/7 thing like high stress and they're just they're getting in there super early and it's super late and it's it becomes this all-consuming kind of <clears throat> you know hyper anxiety provoking but thrilling experience. I mean, is that is that what it was like for you? Is it is that reality?
0: Yeah, there were a lot of things you know, that that propelled me at this time. It was the first time I, I had a chance to do my own menu and it was all so fresh that I really, you know, on the one hand, I understand working eight, nine, ten years, but it's extremely hard work and a lot of people after that much work maybe start to get a little tired. Mm-hmm. I was really fresh and green, um, so I was able to do my own food. It was the first time I'd ever had to lead people in the kitchen like that um i'd had to do that in sports or in other organizations but never in a in a kitchen um but yeah I, well now i forgot the question exactly but it was it was it was a pretty uh interesting experience i felt very motivated it was i was all in every day right. seven days a week i remember the first easter i'd been there a few months and i I stayed in there, you know, all day Easter tiling the walls in the kitchen. I mean, it was right. every right, day, right,
1: right, right. And you get this amazing review. So I would imagine that has a pretty dramatic impact on on your life and your career trajectory from from that point forward.
0: It's a pretty big deal when you see people flooding in the door of this restaurant that may have been going out of business mm-hmm. to begin with, um, and then all the other she's she was such a big critic that several other critics started to come in, mm-hmm. and then it just kept. And so this know. is
1: like 91, maybe what year? Ninety one, 91, yeah. 91. So for people that are listening that aren't familiar with kind of New York City restaurant culture, I mean, this is a big thing, like restaurant culture in New York City. It's all about like, what's the rest? What's the great restaurant to go to? Who, you know, who, who should we go check out? Like, it's almost like movies in Hollywood, you know, the way that people talk about restaurants.
0: Yeah, it's a smaller circle, although New York's pretty big, but it it definitely feels that that way when you're in it Uh uh-huh and so how long are you at that at at this restaurant um until a cab came through the window so i the owners were really happy (laughs) wait wait,
1: hold on a second what (laughs) you are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being
0: Well, the owners were really happy. They were. Uh, they. It was a kind of a write-off for them. They didn't expect it to turn around, mm-hmm. especially when this manager said he's going to hire a 25-year-old chef who's been cooking for about a year. Right. Um, like this is just expedite running this thing into the ground and closing the doors. It, and it was, you know, this was a not a low-profile. You know, it was on the corner of 61st and Third. It was a. It was on a Trump building. It, it, mm-hmm. it was a very high-profile, probably you know a couple million-dollar restaurant to build. Um. So, the owners had another place under construction downtown, a Brazilian inspired restaurant, and they wanted me to be the chef of both. Um, they were really happy with what was going on up there. So, I, they flew me to Brazil and I, I learned about their cuisine a little bit. And I opened this other place downtown, which was a very, um, very, very trendy, huge um, party place. Uh-huh. And What was that called? Uh, Banana Cafe. And it was like named after the one he had in Rio, which was where all the like Rio society people went. He was a, he was a big nightclub entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, Ricardo Amaral. Really interesting guy. It was fun to watch. He was just a good promoter. Um, so, but he was also really into into food. Mm-hmm. So I um, I was anyway running both restaurants. I was doing the new place. It was open maybe six or eight months, nine months. And it was about midnight one night. we just finished a very busy dinner service, and I got a call from the restaurant uptown. It was called Alo, Alo. And that was the one where I was the, the first chef. Right. And somebody, the manager, called and said, the taxi cab came through the, the window. Everybody's okay, but it, it went through the window where the bar is. Fortunately, nobody was in the bar, but the dining room was still full. Oh and God. so we jumped in a cab and went up there. And... um the owners from Brazil happened to be in town, and um, and we were all looking around what to do. And I, I guess I just blurted out, "Maybe this is a good time to change the concept," because even <laughs> though even though I had done pretty well there, it was still the restaurant it wasn't your place. It wasn't quite right for the food I was doing. It was more of a modern Italian society cafe. It didn't fit the, the food I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And they said. Um, ricardo he said well what do you have in mind and i said I'll, t- I'll tell you monday and bear in mind this is before you know before the internet before we had our computers so i used a word processor or a typewriter actually probably um that weekend and typed up a one-page sh- sheet of what i wanted to do a kind of a, a really beautiful mediterranean restaurant all all white and i had it kind of in my head and um and so the following this was a friday and i gave that to him on monday and he said no problem i'll we'll do it if as long as you put your name on it Hmm. so um they gave me a percentage of the restaurant 25 percent of the restaurant Mm -hmm. named it after me matthews and we opened uh nine months later wow and what what was the low what was the location um that was 61st and third oh the same place i got you okay i'm curious about the
1: actual like sort of um nuts and bolts of how it works Mm -hmm. like if you're a well-known name chef and you partner with these financiers to create a restaurant as you kind of see this happening all the time. Like how does that work? Like the money guys come in and you, you split the equity and, and the profits. Like what is the actual kind of like brass tacks of how the business aspect of restaurants at
0: that level function? I mean, there's so many different ways to to do it. It's a little more common now too, for chefs to have ownership. Um, you know, it wasn't, Quite as as common then, like even the best restaurants, La Caravelle, Le Cirque, um, Le Bernardin, the owner was a chef. But the you know fifty fifty half the best restaurants in New York, the chefs were not even partners. Mm-hmm. They're just salaried employees. Yep. So this this was pretty exciting um, for me. But in in that case, it was they were going to put up all the capital. I mean, I had just started working as as a chef and I wasn't. I was on the lower end of the pay scale
1: right but you had a little
0: juice a little little leverage yeah a little um, and they gave me or they said they would give me twenty five percent of the business so I had to get twenty five percent of the profits and mm-hmm. my salary um, it's kind of common I mean sometimes a chef will get fifty percent sometimes it's mm-hmm. ten you know it mm-hmm. depends on the place right gotcha um, but um, so i I I put everything into building this place um kind of let the brazilian place run on its own and i i did everything i mean did the logo with somebody i met downtown and every detail of the place was it was the first time in my life or probably the last time in my life actually when i could put a thousand percent of my energy into one thing and this place was just stunning it was Mm -hmm. beautiful Mm -hmm. um and um and we, we opened strong, and it it, it was just, uh, it changed my career instantly.
1: Right. And so this was, we're talking about like 92 now, maybe? This was uh, 93. 93. Okay.
0: And so how long did that run go for? Well, oh, that restaurant would last until it had a fire, um, and uh, and between the the cab uh, going through the window and the fire, which destroyed it, um, I think it lasted almost 10 years. Or oh, wow. N- nine years. Yeah. huh And, but many things would happen in between armed robberies and floods and, um, (laughs) really seriously.
1: Yeah. Is it like a cursed location for that or something? Or this this, is just, this just, just happens when you're in the restaurant business. Yeah. These kinds of things go on. Right. Yeah. All right. So, so let's fast forward to this kind of defining moment where you have the light
0: bulb goes off on, on raw cuisine. Well, over the next, um, eight years I would open, Ten more restaurants or so. Um, How many restaurants have you had? Twenty. <laughs> Sounds like unbelievable. At least, uh-huh. I mean, I, I've had some that I you know opened and sold, and right. Some, um, some that changed other concepts. We have we're involved mm-hmm. now in six or maybe six or seven. They're not all. And open. some
1: of the like some of them your partners in, and some of them you like consult on. Like there's different
0: relationships with different. Well, those twenty, things, I was right? probably at least a fifty percent owner uh-huh. or more. Wow! Um, for the most part, mm-hmm. I mean, I actually, and within a year of opening that restaurant, my first restaurant, I I was able to convince the Brazilians to sell the restaurant to me, so I became a hundred percent owner. Oh, wow! Um, and that's um, you know just um, so that was my my first taste of being an entrepreneur and. Over the next few years, I would open several more restaurants, so I built a pretty big company. Mm -hmm. But I did you have
1: a vision at that time that you wanted to be somebody who who, that you wanted to be more than a chef, and you wanted to be an entrepreneur and like you know sort of build equity through
0: multiple endeavors. um, You know, it was a creative outlet for me at that time. It's it's a lot different. My approach now is a lot different. It was more about um, just. You just want to create, you know, if an artist just wants to keep painting and I, and for me, it wasn't enough at that time to just change my menu. That was one element of creativity, but that didn't allow me to design a new space and Mm -hmm. do construction and create a whole new environment for people. So I ended up opening some restaurants. Um, Were you there in the, in the nineties on and off? There were a couple of places that I opened. One was called Canteen and Soho. Mm, I remember that place. And uh, another was called Commune and 22nd Street. And these were some of the busiest, biggest restaurants in New York at the mm-hmm. time. So I gravitated toward these big places that were much about as much about the society and the scene as they were about the food. Mm-hmm. And that's where I kind of... that's I took a wrong turn. It looked like a right turn because they were packed and they were doing very well but on a commercial level. But I wasn't happy. It was you know it was more about contemporary comfort food and so i um in my personal life i'm doing more and more yoga eating more and more leaning more and more toward vegetarian even telling friends i i think i could be a vegetarian cuz mm-hmm. i could just feel it um, but these rest none of my restaurants were vegetarian mm-hmm. so 911 um i had seven restaurants two or three under construction i was very exposed because of all these huge um, financial obligations to get these new places built. Massive staff of three or 400 people. And business just fell through the floor mm. after that. Mm-hmm. Especially with these trendy places. Neighborhood places would do okay. But the places that relied on Wall Street and parties. We had a catering business. 100% of our Christmas parties canceled. Wow. Um, so I found myself starting to have to sell things. and It, it took about a year and a half, but I either sold or closed everything and by 2000 it was 2001 by 2000 middle of 2002 i had that was back where i started wow i had nothing uh-huh. um except you know a lot of people offering me to s- start over and do a new place and, right um but i had been doing yoga every day and really focusing on my health and during that time where were you doing yoga uh jimmy mukti at those Makti. yeah <laughs> Um, was the cafe open at that time? Uh uh-uh. uh I ended up opening the cafe. I was, oh,
1: you opened the cafe there?
0: I did originally. I yeah. Wow. It's um, pretty much where I eat lunch. Yeah, every it's day great when I'm in New York. I love it. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's perfect. Uh huh. Um. So I was. I was just doing a lot of that, and I, that was a lot to go through. You know, building yeah. up these things. Some, some of these restaurants were like family to me. So um, I was pretty. I was pretty beat up. And um, a, friend, a friend, a good friend of mine, um, wanted to have dinner during this time, and I made a reservation at, uh, at a trendy restaurant downtown. And I was happy to get a reservation. And he called, and he said, "I'm not uh, very comfortable going there. I'm only eating raw food, and I'm mm-hmm. like, thinking this guy's losing it a little bit." And I said, "But okay." But if you're
1: if you're going to Jiva Mukti all the time, this is not like it can't be that far left of field.
0: Well, they do... you're hanging
1: out with the hippies there, right?
0: Yeah, and and they... But I I just went in and did my thing and left. I listened to, you know... I listened very closely to, you know... The animal, you know, speaking about non-harm uh-huh. to, to all beings and so forth. And I was very much into that, but... Was it... Were you, t- were you... Was Shannon and David around at that time? Were you taking classes from them, or...? No, I'd see them once in a while. Yeah. But, um... But I usually went in the daytime. I didn't see much of them. I hadn't yet met them. I would meet them later. Um, but a friend took me. I lived on 10th Street in university. And a friend uh, invited me to this restaurant on 10th Street between A and B. A raw food restaurant. I'd never even heard of it. It was two blocks from my house. But I was still you know, wearing both hats. The, the wellness side and the, the gourmand side. Mm-hmm. And so he took me there. And I thought the place was pretty funny. No music to speak of no wine um but it was a it was a rainy monday night and it was full of these glowing faces i mean these people were just you know not beautiful in the the fashion sense just glowing with health you could see it right away and um and the food also was was kind of weird it had weird they had named every dish and it was Mm kind of funny flavors I'd never really tasted. I got it, but, you know, talked the whole night, two or three hours listening about enzymes and how you feel, and... I was used to a couple glasses of wine, have a really good meal. I didn't eat bad, but I, I eat what everybody else eats in New York City restaurants. Probably more salt than they realize, more oil than they realize. Mm-hmm. And so I was used to being kind of tired and sluggish. I finished this meal and I was, I was just on fire. I just walked around the city for two or three hours. And... um it stayed in my head, and a couple days later, I ordered takeout from them. And then I said, well, I'm going to try it for a week, because my friend keeps talking about how he feels so good. And it was just like a rocket ship invaded my body. I mean, I couldn't mm. believe the way I felt. Um, and um, and so I just decided that, you know... And, and so I saw what they were doing, and I thought, well, if somebody can apply this modern approach, you know, modern culinary approach, and create a cool environment... And serve this food that that has all the components of of health like this, mm-hmm. but create a make it a little sexier. And then it's probably going to be the next Nobu. Uh, that that's that was right. my thought. Right, right, right. And um, so I convinced um,
1: like take it out of Woodstock. Yeah, right? you know what I mean. Like and and put a put a modern veneer on
0: it. Yeah, and um, and dial up the cuisine aspect of it. So I spent a year. Um, had a, I had an investor who had bought one of my restaurants and he basically in exchange for that restaurant agreed to um, fund my next place. And I told him I wanted to do a raw food place and he, he said okay, but basically the budget he gave me was like, I'd never had a budget this small. Mm-hmm. So I, hired a, I found a space uh, with a garden um, in New York. My girlfriend and I spent a year um developing the menu at home we had dehydrators going and blenders going and i'd go to every weird place i could find to to taste nut milks and uh went to these potlucks and i just devoured every piece of information i could get my hands on um and about a year later we opened uh pure food of mine in new york and it um you know it was the first of its kind in new york there had been a restaurant in california for a while called Roxanne's. I'd never gotten mm-hmm. to it. <clears throat> but, um, so we opened that, and it, uh... That opened, what year was that, then? I think it was 2004. hmm Um, Which, for
1: it, people that are listening, I mean, it's a, it's a, just a stellar restaurant. I mean, it's still my favorite restaurant in New York City. It's gone now. Uh, well, it was, didn't it close, and then it reopened? Is it gone again? They, there's a whole thing there that we not have to kinds get
0: into, but, uh... There's all kinds of, yeah. no, the space is, it's permanently closed. It's permanently I know because I, now. I know because I went to look at it. Oh, you did. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah. I went last time I was in New York, like last summer it was open.
0: Yeah. They stumbled and there was, right. I don't know what was going on. I hadn't been there for mm-hmm. years, but.
1: But the first time I went there was probably 2008, I think. Yeah. Um, And I remember it vividly because I'd never been to a restaurant like that before. And it was, you know, it was quite remarkable in its time. And, yeah, that, and you accomplish that very thing, which is taking this you know incredible new way of 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 preparing cuisine and putting it into a setting that you know a modern New Yorker
0: could you know kind of access you know mentally well to me it it took the the passion I had when I opened my first restaurant it took that to a whole new level because I was able to finally dine i I love food and and wine and ambiance and restaurants. I still love restaurants, but I I didn't love the byproduct, which is that you don't feel good. It's not promoting health, and and also as I was becoming more and more concerned with animals and the environment, and this brought everything together. Mm-hmm. Everything that I cared about was was possible within, um, you know, within one sort of concept. So at the
1: time, did you consider it to be like a risky career? maneuver or did you just feel like this this is a fresh this is where it's all going like this is going to work
0: i should have considered it risky because i had basically you know crashed from my first the first round of my career and it was in new york they love to build you up and tear you down and they press beat me up when i you know i was this hot young mm-hmm. chef getting more all these awards and then crash and they jump on that and i should have been like wow i gotta make sure my next move works mm mm-hmm. So doing raw food in a, you know, expensive space like that probably wasn't the smartest or, or safest um, bet. But I I really didn't pay attention to that. I mean, just like when I opened my first restaurant, never having been a, a manager, I just followed my passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, with a certain degree of belief that, that I could do it well enough that people would embrace it. Right. And it's was it a success right out right out of the gate? Um, it was and it wasn't. We opened and it was packed. Um, we, there was no precedent for running high-end raw food restaurants, so the labor to operate this place was massive. The cost of operating it was expensive, the food cost, the labor cost. And by the time we started to figure it out, winter came. Um, so it was hot for about three or four months, and, but losing money because it was just too expensive to operate. Mm-hmm. And by the time we started to figure out how to streamline that, because I don't think we I had never just never run that kind of kitchen, um people stopped coming. The cold weather came, and raw food, I guess wasn't what like, I, I
1: don't want a raw dinner in February
0: so, so we had nights in uh in we opened in the summer, but we had nights in November, December of that first year where six people would come in or eight people, and you know the rent's twenty thousand a month. We're losing so much money that the owners Saying, you know, you gotta put some sushi on the menu or do this mm-hmm. or do that or getting pressure. I know for a fact mm-hmm. he was talking to um other people about taking it over. So we were on our on the ropes for a while. Um and all of a sudden January came and people started to come little by little. We just it was just a little uptick and we just kept doing our thing and just kept pushing off the sushi idea and, and um by the next summer it was finally profitable Mm -hmm. took a year but Mm -hmm. it was it was a stressful really stressful year
1: yeah but i i would imagine quite gratifying in kind of seeing that this you know this new idea that no one else was doing was actually working right like a foundation for kind of a new way of you know pursuing your career
0: it was gratifying i mean there it was a it was a stressful on a personal level it was stressful i was in (laughs) i opened it with a girlfriend and we were we split up while during that first year and and the the this guy who funded it was kind of shady so it was it was never really able to relax and enjoy it Mm -hmm. as much as i can look back and enjoy it Mm -hmm. and and from there what's
1: what's next i mean how i'm trying to get a sense of like okay so you have this sort of foundational first restaurant that's raw and where does the kind of empire building you know, start to begin? Like, where do you get the idea to, uh, you know, begin a culinary school? And, you know, you've done so many things since then. I mean, you have this, you know, school that you're like, you did, or you, I don't know if it's still going on, like stuff in Oklahoma, and then coming out to Venice, and you've got restaurants, you got a restaurant opening in Miami soon, like all over the place, right? So how do you, like, I'm trying to put those pieces
0: together. Well... I um I had a pretty clear vision from the beginning. I kind of understood what it was like to build a company, and I really liked that. I like having you know from my first company, I I, I like that having that group of really talented people and and having a number of businesses that can trade ideas and and resources and marketing departments and so forth. Um, I quickly realized with Raw Food that it was only going to work even for my own business, if we educated people because I couldn't Mm -hmm. go out and hire a cook. They didn't... Nobody... You can hire a cook who knows how to saute a scallop or peel an onion, but you can't hire someone who knows how to make an heirloom tomato raw lasagna to start teaching classes. And to me, I just saw that there was so much need in the market for people to understand how to prepare this food. There was so much opportunity for an entrepreneur. And I, I always liked to do a lot of things, so this was eight, nine years ago, I really just took a long, hard look at what I wanted out of, out of life and business. And, um, and I decided to create a brand that was, uh, that could encapsulate all of it. And it was a, a lifestyle company that would be in hospitality, meaning restaurants, um, education, um, media. Cause I'd written books at that time. Still, still write books. Written um, like 200 cookbooks, I think 13 or 12. <laughs> um, uh, services um like chef placement and consulting and 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 products eventually right and so um yeah the school started in Oklahoma it was the first state licensed plant-based school at the time and um so now now it's you know now we're s- multiple restaurants i think s- Six restaurants at the end of this year or seven and five schools and
1: right so the restaurants are you have plant food and wine here you're opening plant food and wine in Wynwood and Miami right that's mm-hmm. soon it's got to be coming up it's supposed to be this
0: I, everyone is so excited about it. it's this incredible space right it's yeah it's almost done um I thought it might open at the end of this month but we have a restaurant opening in New York um the first 10 days of February the
1: raw pizzeria
0: it's not raw but it's a it's a vegan pizza concept oh, vegan pizza yep. okay um it's gonna be really cool we have a wood burning oven and um and um i'm excited about that so that's opening in miami uh plant food and wine we have the gothic in maine it's a seasonal restaurant mm-hmm. um we have make out in culver city um we're opening uh we're managing the opening of a restaurant it's not named yet in um Montecito this summer um we uh we have a partnership in mexico and we we're actually just did a deal to open a restaurant in the Middle East, a vegan restaurant in the Middle oh, East. Wow, where in the Middle East? In Bahrain. Amazing. So I, um, I was in
1: Bahrain like two years ago. Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, we uh, we have a really interesting project over there that will probably expand to some other areas. We, That's cool. And so, and
1: the, the the culinary institute aspect of it. I mean, you have a you just I just saw the teaching kitchen that you have here upstairs, and I know that. Uh, you have one in
0: Thailand as well, right? We have two classrooms in Thailand: a cooked and a raw classroom. Um, yeah, that's a that's at a resort uh, in Wahin. We have Miami, um, which is operating already. Is that um, in the
1: same location as the restaurant?
0: It is, but we're running in a temporary location until the restaurant opens. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a we own a building in Maine, and the uh, we have a school on the ground floor in the seasonal. Um, that's really amazing. The students go foraging and. Um, to the market every day and then we have an online school with about 12 or 15 different classes Mm -hmm.
1: and are you still doing like for a while it 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 appeared that you were doing a lot like with sort of online education and video stuff are you still putting focus into that
0: yeah our online school is as big as um a lot of the sometimes we'll have 100 students in our online Mm -hmm. school and Mm -hmm. they're month-long classes um and they're all video there have there's a lot of content in these in these schools that they're right. all video driven
1: right well it has to be very gratifying for you to kind of see this explosion of interest in plant-based eating plant-based lifestyle kind of you know mushrooming blossoming over the last you know even just last four years four or five years right to be sitting where you are as somebody who kind of you know blazed this path a little bit a little bit ahead of the curve
0: yeah i mean i, I I definitely. Um, it's it's great to see people finally realizing that that plant based food. I mean, we all know the benefits. Nobody can deny the benefits. But for people to realize also that it can taste great and it can be served in a in an environment that's just as good or better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the last even the last year has been a tremendous change.
1: Right, and I think you really answer that question. You know, the biggest thing that comes up with the people that I talk to, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, is just, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm interested in it, but like, you know, what about when I go out with my friends and like, I just don't want to, you know, what am I going to eat at a restaurant and to be able to have this place, multiple locations of saying you can come here and, and, and really kind of end that argument about sacrificing taste, flavor and, and being sated.
0: No. And I, I mean, our students are doing that too. We have students all over the world that are opening, you know, um, Mm I'm speaking at an event in Milan next month and, um, (coughs) One of our graduates has a really successful raw food restaurant there called Mantra, so I mean wherever I travel, anywhere I travel, we have graduates. Right. How many
1: uh, graduates of your programs have opened restaurants?
0: I mean we have about three thousand graduates now, and I think probably there must be twenty or thirty restaurants uh-huh. out there I, I don't know for sure. I mean every time i turn around there's there's a student doing a juice bar in Hamburg and a student writing a book doing a product it's incredible and so you know that makes me as happy as it does yeah. to open my own place because it's it's just it's reaching so many people so quickly that way
1: uh-huh yeah yeah it's very cool I um I was in New York I think it was like a year ago and I had uh, a chef named Seamus Mullen on uh-huh. the podcast Do you know Seamus I, I haven't met him but okay. we sort of. he's have, a cool guy yeah. he's not plant-based he's plant curious okay. <laughs> but uh but he's all about real food you know uh and uh and we're friends and i and he said come to tertulia and i'll make you i'll make you dinner so i went there and it's like you know you can kind of smell the pork because he's cooking all different kinds of things there but he whipped up an amazing plant-based meal for myself and my friend john joseph and i have to say it was one of the best plant-based meals I've, i've ever had and i was like you should have a vegan restaurant like he's like I'm like, how did you do that? You're not even like in this space, and he's like, he he said something very interesting, which was, most of the plant-based restaurants that you go to, vegan restaurants, exist because whoever owns it or whoever the chef is is somebody who uh, lives the lifestyle and wants to promote the lifestyle, but they're not a properly trained chef, right? Whereas Seamus is yourself, you are as well. Um, so they lack that that kind of uh culinary skill set that you have that allows you to kind of take it to the next level
0: yeah that's that's true that's why we started our school because i didn't think that plant-based would ever have a chance um if if we didn't create a platform for people to learn it properly Mm -hmm. yeah yeah which is cool
1: and now it's all happening so um What's interesting, too, about your story is that you had this this moment. You got, When you made your transition, it was really kind of immediate, right? Like over a period of a few weeks, you just changed your lifestyle completely and you've never
0: looked back? Changed it completely. I mean, for the first two years, I was 100% raw vegan, never never tried anything, wouldn't eat a piece of gum. Um, I eventually would start to, to dabble and try, you know, little, not meat, but I would try, you know, if i was in peru i had tried ceviche i was in you know somewhere else and and then it, but i ended up always coming back to you know plant based mm-hmm. um but yeah as a lifestyle i've always stayed this way in my company in the early years a few years ago we had two restaurants that were not vegan even though they served food i wouldn't personally eat cuz somebody in my company had an idea and, and we decided to back it um but now we've we've converted we're hundred percent plant-based and we 100%. always will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I'm not, I, I wouldn't characterize myself as being, you know, quote unquote raw. I would say, you know, the majority of the food that I eat, perhaps the large majority of the food that I eat is raw. Um, I do eat some cooked food, but, uh, for somebody who's listening, who, who's interested, it, the 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 kind of refrain is well it's it's so severe like how do you do that like it's intimidating i think for the average person so when somebody says to you like oh you know you look great like i mean honestly you look like 20 years younger than than you are you look amazing you're you're clearly an an example of vitality and health but for the average human being they're like yeah but that i can't do that myself right how do you how do you uh you know hold the hand of somebody who's in that position
0: well, that's one of the, that's a very common question that comes up with, I mean, I had a long letter from somebody in Italy this morning saying, you know, she knows it's better for her and her daughter and they, they need this, but they don't know how to do it. And I, I think the biggest um, misconception is that we have to make food that looks like what looks, what we see on our Instagram or in cookbooks. And it's really, I don't eat that way at home. I'll open an avocado and take some sheets of nori and a little sauerkraut and, I don't know, a couple other ingredients, some olives, and that's a meal. It Mm -hmm. takes me five minutes. And the problem is no publisher is interested in publishing a book with that stuff, but Mm -hmm. some they should be. And I'm actually writing a a diet book, which is more about how to get into it in in a practical way. Um, But I'd say just keep it simple. It's really not that complicated. You know, Mm -hmm. people just eat seasonally and a lot of fruits i mean a lot of liquids and smoothies and juices it's it's not that hard but the problem is we see books and everything and we just think that our food has to look like that
1: right it has to look absolutely perfect and pristine yeah (laughs) Uh, what are the what are like the a couple of the things that you would say are sort of you know the essentials if somebody wants to you know dip their toe in this
0: in terms of equipment, or,
1: or equipment and just basic foods, like if you're going to go to the farmers market or the or whatever the supermarket and just stock up on a few things and maybe give it a try.
0: I mean, I think for anyone starting out, they're going to miss, you know, that that feeling of maybe being full, and, and you don't want to overcompensate by just eating too many nuts or something. So I think liquids are really important. Um, That's what people do, right? They they kind of overdose on the nuts. Yeah, and I think you know creating a a really big filling smoothie. It's a good way to get a lot of a lot of good calories, a lot of you can get some greens and some fruits and I, I just feel like green smoothies are a great way to begin. Mm-hmm. Um it's a really good transition. It makes people feel like they're doing something edgy but it's not quite as edgy as some of the stuff and you know, start with a meal a day and then try another meal a day and you know, it's or, or try another another one of those meals, but big salads are great with avocado and hemp seeds and some sea vegetables and i mean i lived that way for the first six months i didn't know what i was doing i didn't know how to use a dehydrator right 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 and i think the
1: biggest thing is just paying attention to how you feel and making note of that you know always it sounds like that was really the main thing for you when you had you connected those dots that really
0: solved that equation for you everything digestion and sleep and all of that right
1: and and so now it's been how many years you've been doing this about
0: uh 12 13 yeah 12 something like that yeah you just came from playing tennis um (laughs) i i did i did play tennis um yeah i i the middle of a work day i'm not gonna tell anyone no one's listening no i it's okay i don't i do work seven days a week and i probably put in nine year 100 hours but i definitely take time for yeah, yeah i play tennis and i and i uh go to yoga and i go to the gym and i Ride my bike everywhere and, um, you know, went to a movie yesterday. I try to have a normal life. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, that was kind of the next sort of line of inquiry I wanted to get into. As this entrepreneur, you're juggling so many things. I mean, you have so many projects going on at any given time. Like, just hearing about it, like, my personal anxiety level goes up. I take your blood pressure yeah, <laughs> from when we started. So how do you, yeah, like, how do you gracefully navigate this and make sure? I mean, you got into this because you had an interest in wellness. And it's that irony of, like, the thing that, you know, the the sort of wellness motivation is the thing that falls by the wayside when, you know, I'm dealing with this myself. Like, as I kind of try to grow what I'm doing, um, you know, what got me into it to begin with starts to get eroded, and I have to pay attention to that to make sure that, you know, I keep all of that in check. So how do you make sure that you're, uh, you know, you're attending to... Your well-being as a as a priority
0: the, well there were a couple of years and I'm still on the tail end of that where I knew I had to make a sacrifice if I wanted to build a company of this size but my perverted logic is that when the company gets big enough where we have about 21 different entities right now but my my logic was when the company gets to a certain size it will be able to have built a team of really strong professionals that um, so that it individual projects don't rely on me so heavily and it creates a little opening for me mm-hmm. to to take care of my my health and my sleep and all of that and but that's in the future that's some imagined future time right and it's starting i mean that- i six months ago i never would have been able to play tennis in the middle of the day right well i i have this sense that
1: you're a pretty exceptional team builder because you have a lot of people here you seem to to understand how to properly delegate and build. in. Maybe that's something you learned early on working in kitchens, but you have a lot of people here who are very dedicated, who are looking
0: out for you. I think the most important decisions I make are the, the people that I, you know, try to build a team with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's definitely number one. And I, I encourage them to also put in that, uh, that time. But you know, one of the things that our leadership meeting last week that I asked that they consider as a goal is also, take more initiative with, um, their health regimen, whether it's exercise or meditation or whatever it is. We, we're, um, we're definitely, you know, a high growth company and things are moving fast and it's very intense, but I, it makes you really appreciate those moments, that hour of tennis. Like I really savor it. It's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Right. We're, and you uh, still keep your yoga practice up? Uh, yeah. Almost every day. Um, you know, probably five days a week. I, I'd like to go at seven in the morning or if I can get it, get up, I like going early mm-hmm.
1: and how have you been enjoying living in Venice?
0: Oh, it's great, and yeah yeah, it feels like home. I mean, are
1: you here to stay or are you gonna go back to New York? you think
0: no we're we're opening business in New York, and we're actually doing some additional things there, but no this is this is home. I can't imagine being anywhere else. I love yeah. it here. Cool
1: I'm super proud to announce So I'm interested in, I mean, conventional wisdom is that, you know, getting into the restaurant business is crazy. Most, most restaurants fail. Um, and it's a super risky proposition. And as someone who has 20 restaurants over the years, you know, what is your, like, what do you think is, are the keys to a restaurant being successful?
0: It's, you know, location is the the thing you always hear. That's important. Um, but having the right concept in the right location, the ambiance has to be spot on and you really just have to look at every single detail. And it's not glamorous. I mean, I talk about the owner that I saw in New York sitting at the bar sipping wine and changing the music, but the reality is, you know, Saturday night, I went home and wrote a, you know, one-page list of things I thought we could do better and they weren't, you know, it was like, let's not use this plastic tray. or <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not glamorous stuff at all. It's details and you have to have an eye and a willingness to, to always be better and focus on these details. I mean, there's just so many little things that guests won't necessarily see it, but they'll feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, so being fanatical about being you know, excellent is, is critical.
1: But I would imagine you have, to, you have to buffer your design aesthetic against the pure economics of, of making it work, right? Like every penny counts, and you have to understand where every dollar is being spent and how that's going to get recouped
0: you do i mean in a higher end restaurant like plant food and wine it you know it it becomes more about making sure you do the volume um but yeah there is a lot of that but you know certain corners and that's that's more challenging in a restaurant like this because we want to use organic ingredients we're not going to use plastic we're not going to use a lot of things that mm-hmm. you know in a in a traditional restaurant you would see so as much as we might want to cut some corners from a financial perspective we don't and can't Um, so it is maybe even more challenging with this kind of a restaurant to, to, you know, make it, Yeah, I mean,
1: if you're going to be sort of on the, you know, the high end, like sort of best of best of, of everything, um, how do you create that and not price yourself completely out of the market so that, you know, you can continue to do what you do.
0: Yeah. And, you know, still today, if you walk down this street, Abbott Kinney, our most expensive entree Is still less expensive than probably the least expensive entree in every other restaurant. It just happens that their entree is, well, their entree would be salmon or whatever. And the funny thing is, like, I'd rather pay much more for good plants than I would, you know, Mm -hmm. not very good non plants. So, but it's that that's a shift that hasn't quite happened yet. Right, no. and how much how much time do you
1: spend sourcing the the actual food, like and wh- where you get it, and
0: do you do you have to go and visit these farmers, or how does that work? It's a committed effort with all of our businesses um, here, as you can see, but in the garden we've, we've got. All sorts of things growing. We have fig trees and olive trees, and we grow edible flowers. Yeah, and so there's a garden right in the middle
1: of the patio where everyone's eating, right?
0: We yes, but we're also working on um, signing a deal with the landlord next door the, of the building next door. There's a about a half acre space between our building and his, and I've almost gotten him to agree to letting us plant there. So we'll actually have the largest um, private restaurant garden that I know of in L.A. Um, we can probably supply about half of our own produce. That's amazing. Um, and um, I hope to have that ready by spring. And, um, but we also go to the market. Our chefs are at the market every Wednesday, every Friday. We, have, we work with companies that actually shop at the market for us. We work mm. directly with a lot of specialty suppliers. So it's a, it's a very important part of what we do, whether it's in here or in Maine or wherever we go. Mm-hmm. To, to have that space next door would be incredible. Yeah, it's you know we're almost we've almost gotten him to agree. He just decided at the last minute he wants to um, charge us a, a fee, but it will be worth it. So,
1: are there any other restaurants that have that? Literally, like on the on the site, you know, basically growing the food next door to the restaurant.
0: Like in Napa Valley, you have restaurants, but in in L.A. proper, I don't none that I know of. Right, not that big. I think it will be the largest private restaurant garden in the city that would be amazing so and it really fits what we're trying to do here
1: right right so in kind of taking a a bird's eye view on everything that 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 you're doing you've really curated this you know kind of uh exceptional extraordinary experience around um, cuisine in general and specifically raw cuisine Um, and i think that that has its own ripple effect across the culture as there's more and more momentum and interest in eating raw and eating plant-based. But how do we do a better job of of creating a way for this to kind of trickle down and impact people who are on a different socioeconomic, you know, living in a different reality. You know what I mean? How do we make how do we make this kind of food more accessible for the mainstream or just the average, you know, American who's just you know trying to pay the bills and you know get to next week
0: well there there are things we can all do on a daily basis um, with our you know sharing information. I think you know we try to share recipes and share content as and with our new online platform, there is a public part of that where we're just instead of people enrolling in schools we're just giving information we try to do that mm-hmm. but um, you know in a more on a more macro level, we have to uh, really start to influence some some of the major food producers and food service arenas. So, for example, you know i'm I've got a half dozen different initiatives I'm working on like that that may or may not happen. I'm talking to I've had a c- couple of uh, interactions with with Kraft, for example, one of the largest mm-hmm. food producers in the world. If you call that food, um. <laughs> but, um, but you know, my in in their, they they recognize that plant based is something they need to embrace, and we've mm-hmm. had meetings with um, you know some of the largest dairy producers in Europe, and I'm also talking to hospitals um, and schools about developing food service mm-hmm. programs for them. So I think we the way we can reach a lot of people is through institutional food service through mainstream um food corporations and and we really have to knock on a lot of doors and be bold and confident about it but uh, it will happen eventually and i'm just trying to do my part to make sure it happens sooner than when it will <laughs> happen naturally
1: right well at the same time by training all of these you know sort of new chefs that's the equivalent of you know instead of giving a man a fish you know teaching him how to fish like you're you're empowering all these people to go out in the world and then they share their information either through, you know, opening up their own restaurants or just sharing the knowledge that they've learned that creates its own kind of, you know, domino effect.
0: I'd like to increase the supply and the demand at the same time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So (laughs) it's cool. It's very inspiring to see, uh, what you've built here and, you know, kind of a moniker that I think encapsulates your message. And I think it was the title of your Ted talk is, is, you know, the, is really thinking about the future of food. Like how can we change the future of food? So when you look at the future of food, you know, looking forward, like, what do you see? Like, what do you envision, you know, in your preferred universe?
0: Well, yeah, that te- that talk was uh, crafting the future of food because it really is something we have to work hard at and, and create. Um, I think that um, plant-based, you know, the, the evolution of um, discussing plant-based food, you know, everybody described it as vegan. And I think plant-based is actually even better, not because I have anything against the word vegan. I actually love the word vegan. I think it's become very cool. But plant-based is excellent because it it's really where food I think is already going. Um, and what I mean by that is if you go to a meat based restaurant or a fish based restaurant, you can still get broccoli or a salad. And I think plant-based, it's just impossible that everybody in the, in the universe is going to eat all vegan. It, you know, some places don't even have a choice, mm-hmm. but if we can base our diet, everybody's diet on plants and anything beyond that is, is simply beyond that. It's in addition to that. Um, then it's a tremendous shift bigger than i think anybody can possibly imagine and so i think finding ways to show how people can live on a plant-based diet by you know just simply creating content and tools for them to be able to do it uh, awareness and uh, interest from the media and showing the benefits is there's, there's so many things happening at once but that's really my my goal to see the world become you know to see plant-based become the norm not the exception
1: right And what do you think are the biggest barriers to that right now? Um,
0: Well, I've always believed uh, that chefs are one of the biggest barriers and also um, have the most potential to change the world. And I guess that's where I'm a little different. A lot of people have felt like telling the consumer about the benefits and, and all the, you know, I support, you know, a lot of my friends are in Mercy for Animals and PETA, and I love all the work that everybody's doing. But we're pleasure seekers as humans, and the way I think to change habit is to, sh- to give them something that tastes better and looks better, right. feels better um, than the non-plant-based counterpart. And, uh, and that will drive the change. And I think chefs have the ability to do that because they know how to make anything taste good and look good. And mm-hmm. you know, Wolfgang Puck has, what, 20, 30, 40 restaurants? If he decided tomorrow that he was going entirely plant-based he'd probably lose a little business, but he probably, he would change the world with that. You know, mm-hmm. Alain Ducasse in, in Paris is, I know you were just in Paris, right? Right. Well, we ate at L'Arpage. He with, does amazing and, vegan and he, tasting. It menu. was incredible. Alain Passard, right? He was incredible. You I, know. I saw him last year. And, and Ducasse just took, you know, red meat off his menu. And John George at Von Richten in New York is doing a, a vegetarian restaurant. So for me, it's always been about the chefs. It's another reason I opened a school. And I... I'm doing everything possible and and a lot of people in my circle doing everything possible to make sure that chefs um you know really see themselves as as responsible for delivering not just taste but health. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, chefs cuz chefs can be drug dealers, but you know, with some of the food they're putting out there is worse than than drugs or they can be healers. And um and so that's really where our focus is. That's why we're in education and That's kind of where I'm. I'm coming from. Yeah,
1: it's really interesting. I never really thought of it in that regard, but that's so true. I mean, you're basically setting the bar. You're saying this is, you know, this is where the culture is, right? And they're going to eat what you serve them, and the responsibility that you carry with that is something I never really thought about. Well,
0: chefs have a huge reach. Look at Mm. there are more food shows than any other type of show. Oh, so crazy right now. You know. So imagine if twenty of the world's top chefs did what I did. And half, you know, five or six of them also have T V shows and they're just like, Look, we're only gonna do this if it's if it's plant based. It's it would change the world in a in a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's the, that's our tipping point. And you know, we're we're inching toward that. You're starting to see a lot of chefs acknowledge that um that they know that plant based is better and that that mm-hmm. they're eating that way at home and I've seen. Uh, I mean, Jamie Oliver seems to be slowly inching himself in that direction a little bit. Well, a lot of them are chained to the economic tie that they have because, like yeah. Jamie's got a barbecue concept, right. and, you know. And, and if I hadn't lost my entire business in 2002, I probably would have held on to it too. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe,
1: maybe not. Right. But it is changing. The culture is shifting, though. I mean, it was it, it just a couple of days ago that article came out about. Tom Brady's chef and he's basically eating like, he's not entirely plant-based, but you know, it's pretty, you know, close to eating like
0: 80% plant-based, you know, and it caused a big, you know, stir. That, he was, you know. yeah, he was our first private chef client. Actually. Oh, he was. Yeah. Uh-huh. We, we gave him a graduate of our school. Um, And yeah, there are, we see a lot of that with a lot of athletes are going that way. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And you've done plenty of stuff with, Brendan over the years as well, right? Mm-hmm. Are you guys yeah. still working on stuff together?
0: Yeah, well, he's Brendan's. A, one of our members here at the restaurant, and we do an online course with Brendan: uh, mm-hmm. sports nutrition and elite sports nutrition. It's one of our most popular online courses, actually. Mm-hmm. Very so, um, cool.
1: If you could uh, speak to your twenty-year-old self and give uh, a young Matthew a little bit of advice, what would that be? Oh, man. Based on what you've
0: learned? Well. Um, you know, I would say the one thing I let go of when I was young, because I was, I was into um, health and, and healthy food and wellness um, before I was into the culinary arts. And I sacrificed that by, by getting into food. I, I would say, you know, try to hold on to all your passions, combine them into, you know, into your life's work on the other hand if i hadn't let go of that i wouldn't have become a chef so you know it's 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 tough i mean i've i think i've made every mistake somebody can make um or hopefully most of them um so you know those mistakes have made you who you are matthew <laughs> yeah right? we all do
1: right? <laughs> but being able to embrace that is a good thing you know it's that weird thing like you yeah i would say don't do this don't do that but like had you not stumbled in those ways you wouldn't be sitting here
0: where you are yeah i'm pretty happy where it all ended up so Uh you know like exactly i don't really look look back with any any regrets what what's you know
1: what what have you not done yet that you still would be excited to to do or that's on the horizon for you products right how come you don't have all kinds of Products out there.
0: We had them ready to go last year. With um, we, we had an arrangement with with Whole Foods, and I decided to wait because I wanted to um, to have our own production facility instead of doing it on a small scale. So we're working on uh, collaboration. We're actually going to, I think, launch our products first in Europe, um, but but we'll see. It's part of you know really that's that's what I have left is just to fill out the vision for the company. But my vision's been consistent for many years, and now it's just about. Completing the things that we've thought about doing. Mm. What kind of products would those be? um, Well, we'll do two two, two product lines. One will be a licensed product, which will be more equipment. Um, We're working with a company now that's uh, developing a thermal immersion for uh, the home and a blender and some other things. And that's more of a licensing product um, for equipment. And then we'll probably do our cheeses and our ice cream and Mm -hmm. um, a couple other things to start. And then... You know, we'll see. We'll see where it goes from from there. Um, but yeah, we have quite a few quite a few new projects we're right. we're working on. And what would be like the
1: ultimate restaurant? Like, if you could have everything, if you could check every box on everything you ever wanted for your like dream restaurant, what would that look like?
0: Well, we're we're close to signing a deal for that to happen. It's in Asia uh, on an island. We haven't done it yet, but if it happens, it, it's it's with a partner who really just wants one of the best restaurants in the world mm. happens to be plant that happens to be plant-based. We'd have our own gardens and a climate that would allow you to dine outside pretty much all year round. Wow. Um, not have the pressures of, um, you know, of it having to be profitable and it would just be an opportunity to really show the world, you know, the ultimate potential for this kind of cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the, on the high end, but on the other hand, it's it would be just as satisfying to to have a vegan, you know, McDonald's where that feeds thousands of people a day and seeing that reach. That, I like that just as much. So, you know, they're both- are you working on that kind of a concept as well? Um, no, we're plant food and wine is our our kind of high end. That would be a one off that project in Asia. Um, our pizza concept is something that we do intend to do in multiple locations, um, and we're. Um, our restaurant, the Gothic in Maine will be a prototype this season for something that may be on the lower end, but no, I don't have anything at the, at the McDonald's level right now. Right, Somebody right. else will do that, but
1: well, Veggie Grill kind of that, right? I mean, your version would be very different, I would imagine, but yeah, our but
0: bandwidth just doesn't, uh, I think, you know, that's a full-time job and right. the guys at Veggie Grill, they put a lot of energy into that. And, um, no, I think we'll expand through additional locations of the concepts we already have. Mm -hmm. And what do you think the plant-based kind of universe
1: will look like, you know, five years from now, like where, what's the next thing that's coming down the pike or where do you, where do you see this evolving to in the near future?
0: Um, I think it's, there's going to be a lot of, um, a a lot of growth within, you know, the current market. So, you know, like Bahrain, for example, places like that all over the world will start to do, um, you know, develop and offer plant-based, but also then it fills in around that. You know, once you have a high-end restaurant, then you have stores that sell the product, so people can make that kind of food at home, and that kind of fills itself out. But I think the institutions, schools, and hospitals embracing plant-based is is a logical next step, and I know there are Mm -hmm. people in those institutions fighting to make it happen, and once that does, um, then, you know, I think it's going to be so much better. I'm still... I'm still amazed that, um, you know, we learn how to, to build a cutting board and how to sew and how to make crepes and all these other things in school and how to memorize the, the capital of every city or every, or every state, but we don't to learn how to properly feed ourselves. Yeah. Um, so that is also a matter of time, but you know, those, are, those are next steps too.
1: Yeah. I mean, the food in hospitals and
0: schools is mm-hmm. insane. And, you know, I don't believe that it, it, I don't believe that it has to be. Certainly not in hospitals. It definitely doesn't
1: have to be. It'll be interesting to see how that pans out. There are a lot of people who are working really hard to change that. And it's going to be exciting to see, you know, that fall into, fall into place. And I believe it will as well. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to wrap it up here, but I got to, I want to, I want to kind of close it down with a final question, which is, you know, what do you, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions that people have about? eating raw
0: the raw lifestyle well i think there's a um i mean people in la probably don't have that misconception as much but where i grew up in maine if they hear about raw food they're they're imagining you know someone barefoot on an island you know climbing a tree and (laughs) eating fruit and that it's dysfunctional and um and not practical and it it is a misconception because you actually become more functional and more effective in your day-to-day life and your. You know when you're not getting sick and um so I, I just think that you know people see it as as something that's not sustainable and the the opposite's actually true i mm-hmm. mean it really be- makes your life sustainable well i'm gonna start eating more raw <laughs> uh, you think you're doing pretty well uh, no
1: I, I could always do better believe me this is still an evolving learning curve for me man so this has been uh this has been great. Thanks for your time. I Thank appreciate you. it. Appreciate it. Um, of the 200 cookbooks that you've written, uh, what do you think is a good kind of introductory one for somebody if they're going to go to Amazon and kind of peruse your all your titles?
0: Everyday raw express is a good book because it doesn't require dehydrators or any you know doesn't you don't have to open Special coconuts. Equipment. Yeah, right. that's a good book to start with. Um, the the latest book we did was plant food, which. Um, is a beautiful book, but a little more artsy. And the next one I'm um, doing is, um, I, I, the working title is The 90 Day Raw Food Diet, which mm-hmm. is really to help people. How do you get into this? How do you stay in this? It's a little more practical. How do you come out with cookbooks like
1: every other year while opening you know, multiple restaurants and running existing <laughs> restaurants and running? That? I mean, how do you, on a pure like time management level?
0: Like, I don't even, how do you get it done? How do you get it all done? I have a lot of entrepreneur friends and mentors and we just, you know, support each other and we just sit down and just grind it out. Those are the terms, the term we use, we just Uh do it. And, and, you know, it's, to me, um, not just myself, but our whole company, we devote a lot of time to creating new content. The number one thing, the first thing at the top of the page when I have a meeting is innovation. That's always number one. We don't ever, we're not just trying to like take these dishes we've created and put them in 50 restaurants. That's not our first goal. Our first goal is do better food tomorrow than we did yesterday we have a test kitchen in maine we're building a test kitchen here in la called plant lab and um and so you know writing these books developing new ideas that's that's a good you know 10 15 percent of our of our the time mm-hmm. so and I, you know i'm pretty pretty fast writer at this point
1: too right well it's inspiring your output is extraordinary and what you've built here is really something special and uh i'm proud to know you and it'll be exciting to see how these new projects pan out and i'm just excited for seeing how this movement is going to develop over the last couple of years and it's cool to you know be a be a small part of it and and helping forge cultural change so there's a lot more work to be done but uh i'm glad that you're out there doing it
0: i think we're going to see an interesting couple of years ahead it's going to be a really yeah. globally with, um, so cool. with what everyone's doing, all our colleagues and friends. It's, we, there's an amazing group around us. Yeah,
1: it's, it's very, very cool. So awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if people want to check you out, the best place to online, the best place to do that is MatthewKennyCuisine.com. Correct, yeah. And Twitter is Lifestyle. Yeah.
0: Um, What's the it, best? What it you is, ever yeah. We we have a lot of content on Facebook, um, Matthew Kenny on Facebook, mm-hmm. our business page, and, and Instagram. Those are all Matthew Kenny Cuisine. So, all right, cool. Everything is except Instagram, but I, I mean, Twitter. But I can't figure out how to change the. <laughs> I mean, some for some reason we're locked in. We can't change it. Yeah, that's the way it works. All so,
1: right, man. Thanks.
0: All right, thank you. Take care. Peace. Blunts.
1: Hope you guys enjoyed that. Be sure to check out Matthew online and find out where all his restaurants are. Drop in, pay him a visit, enjoy his delicious food. And don't forget to check out the show notes at richroll.com. Lots of links and resources to take your edification to the next level. Plant Power Tuscany. This is our retreat in Italy. Uh, It was officially sold out. A couple people dropped out and a couple spots opened up. So if you're super keen on attending but didn't uh, kind of get your act together soon enough or whatever the reason was, uh, you can contact Mel, our producer, through uh, the retreat website, which is ourplantpowerworld.com. I think there's two or three spots still open. Uh, Once again, we're going to be doing the retreat again in October. So if those dates didn't work out, the dates in May, uh, I'm going to be announcing specific dates in October and we're taking um, submissions for the waitlist for that now. So, again, go to ourplantpowerworld.com. You can contact Mel through that website and let her know that you're interested. Uh, secondly, Julie and I just launched a new online video course with Mind Body Green. It's called The Ultimate Guide to Conscious Relationships, all about cultivating uh, your best. Relationship. Uh, really proud of this course. Go to mindbodygreen.com. Click on Video Courses on the upper left-hand side of the homepage. It'll take you right there, and you'll see my other courses there as well, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, Self-Explanatory, and The Art of Living with Purpose, which is all about setting and achieving goals. Uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash richroll. I'm also doing a lot on Snapchat. My name there is I am Rich Roll, I-A-M, Rich Roll. Uh, it's been super fun kind of sharing my perspective uh, using that app. Uh, let's look at the calendar. Let's see the NYU Vegan Athletes event that had already happened. The Austin Health Hoopla that's off the calendar. They had to cancel that event. So, right now, it looks like the only thing coming up is Cleveland, the Veg Fest, May 7th. I will see you there. For all your plant power and RRP swag and merch needs, go to richworld.com. What do we got there? We got nutrition products, we got t shirts, we got sticker packs, we got Tech we got fine art prints, all kinds of cool stuff to take your uh, health and wellness to the next level. Keep sending in your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. If you happen to be in uh, the Los Angeles vicinity, please make a point of venturing out to Westlake to have a meal at Joy Cafe. That's the restaurant that Julie and I are partnered in. It's JOI Cafe. It's in Westlake Village. Uh, It's really great to use this podcast and all the travel and the public speaking engagements that I do to share my message on kind of a global or virtual level, but it's also really nice to spread the message locally in my community. That's what... Joy Cafe is all about, as well as Karma Baker, which is the vegan, gluten free uh, baked goods company that Julie and I are also partners in. You can find out more. Go to joycafe.com or karmabaker.com uh, to find out more about those products. Um, big shout out to Sean Patterson for all his help on the graphics for today's episode, Chris Swan for production assistance, and our theme music was done by Anna Lemma. Thanks for all the support, you guys. I will see you back here in a couple days big love, be well, take care of yourselves. Peace. Plants.